Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. And today we're going to talk all things handwriting. So often what we see with autistic children is that there are fine motor difficulties, which correlates to handwriting difficulties. So we're going to dive into that. We'll also touch on learning disabilities broadly, what type of support you can get in school, and also then knowing when your child might need that additional support outside of the school system. So I have Kelly Fetter here with me today. So by training, she is an occupational therapist, and she is a certified handwriting specialist. So she helps with tutoring and helping to improve handwriting. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast, and I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. Kelly, I'm so excited to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Tay. I am thrilled to be here, and I know that our audiences just align so frequently together. I'm just excited to share with you all of my handwriting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was just in an IEP meeting recently where we were talking about dysgraphia and having accommodations and testing to be able to type. So it definitely comes up quite a bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and also how you got into this work. Perfect. So I own and run Handwriting Solutions, which is a service for families with um, children that need a little extra handwriting support. So what we do is we offer one-on-one handwriting tutoring sessions, and these happen virtually. And then we also provide support for the parent and then any teachers. We do teacher consultations, and then we also support therapists and teachers professionally as well through some training and education on handwriting. As far as how I got started on this, handwriting is one of those really misunderstood pieces of literacy and um, maybe get to put on the back burner a bit with literacy. So how I got started was my own child has dyslexia and dysgraphia. And even as a pediatric occupational therapist, where I practiced for several years as an OT, I was not aware really of what to do for dyslexia or dysgraphia. I was not sure how to support her and how to help her. And I took all of the training, took all of the classes, read all of the books, read the research, anything I could get my hands on to figure out how to support her and help her with her dyslexia and dysgraphia. And what I saw was a gap in how we're serving these kids. So often these kids don't qualify for OT services in school or outpatient. And so there's a gap there. The kids are are missing some explicit and quality instruction. And 
then it's years later and they're behind and their academics are suffering. So I saw the gap and I saw, I thought, okay, we've got to, we've got to help these kiddos, my own child included. And so handwriting solutions was born and we're just really advocating for these kids and getting the help that they need and making that difference. Because again, handwriting is a critical piece of literacy and it's, it just is so intertwined with reading that we just, we can't neglect it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You're saying that a lot of these kids don't qualify for OT because then my brain, I'm, I get kids all the time that don't qualify for more like the sensory regulation piece, adaptive behavior. And the kids that do qualify have fine motor difficulties usually. So what is that missing gap between them being identified in school? What's going on that they often aren't being picked up? A lot of times it is undiagnosed learning disabilities, or they are getting maybe some like a 504 plan in school, which is great. They're getting some accommodations, but they're not, they're still not getting that remediation support. And I get it because I get that schools are overworked and at capacity. And so I do understand that. And so we have to know whose role it is and all of that piece. But I often think that's really where the gap exists. And to qualify for certain services, you often do have to have a specific diagnosis, and then you might qualify for XYZ, and then it's still not enough. And so it just it becomes this real issue for parents too, of like, how do I help? I want to help. I want to help my child. I don't know how to help. And so those are usually the parents that come to me. <laughs> So given the context of the majority of parents listening to this have autistic children, we have talked about not all autistic children qualify for IEPs, but for those that maybe have existing IEPs, what would be some things that they can be advocating for school at in terms of getting this handwriting support? So often in schools that does look like accommodations, it could be something as simple as oral spelling tests versus written or it could be a speech to text type accommodation, which is great because what that's what we want. In school, we want to know what they know. And so that's the key there. But if they're really struggling with the physical component of handwriting, we can definitely request that assessment in school and go through that process. And that's great, but that still may be only 30 minutes once a month. And so is that really going to get them the, reme- the direct remediation that they really need. Again, sometimes getting that outside support can really make a difference because we can see the kid for one or two times a week and get twice as fast result and seeing it from a different lens. Because in schools, often it's very much like the teacher does this, OT does this, and like it's hard to get that. And I think as tutoring special and as handwriting specialists, We pull from a variety of knowledge base. When do you think parents need to start monitoring for this? What ages are you usually recommending parents start paying attention and getting support if their child isn't progressing in handwriting? Okay. So I have, I guess, two responses here. So there's one um, piece that I want to make sure we, we touch on. I would, I recommend we're observing in kindergarten. 
Now, that is not to say that we want our kid to be able to write beautifully in kindergarten. So I don't want people to take that message because we know that actually before kindergarten, we're not really pushing pencil to paper. We're actually doing play activities to build up their fine motor muscles, to build up their visual skills. We're we're doing letter play. So we might be building the letters and identifying the letters. But again, we're not necessarily writing the letters because if we look at a developmental chart of what a child should be able to do, they learn how to write vertical lines and then horizontal lines and then circles, crosses. And the last one is diagonals. And that doesn't happen until age five for typically developing kids. And think about all the letters in the alphabet that have diagonals in them. So it's just really not age appropriate to be writing um, a lot of letters before kindergarten. But when kindergarten comes, we want them to begin that and practicing those skills and getting that explicit instruction. But also we're going to monitor them because you can generally see if a child is struggling and where they're struggling at. And are they getting those developmental lines appropriately? And do they have the, the right pencil grasp or a functional pencil grasp, I should say, And then we're monitoring really throughout. And obviously, we know that early intervention is, quote, best. It's also never too late. And I think there's a little bit of tension in that space when it comes to just the other day, my friend asked because she overheard a therapist say that if a child is in third grade, their handwriting is as good as it's going to get. And we don't need to do anything. And I just, I get on my soapbox and I'm like, really? Okay. No, that's not accurate because that would be like saying an adult might have a stroke. Oh, sorry. We can't really remediate your skills because you've got this brain. That's not true. We know that our brains are plastic and we know that we can um, always improve on a child's handwriting. It doesn't matter if they're in kindergarten or if they're in high school. Yeah. And I think what happens is it's often linked to these critical periods in brain development. And then, but then we interpret it as nothing can happen after that. Speaking is a great one that you hear a lot. Like if your kid doesn't speak by age five, they're never going to speak. It's okay. We see the most progress usually in the first five years of life, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Or we might see the most progress for handwriting through third grade, but it's absolutely still changeable because yeah, the brain is changeable and we can support those skills in development. So yeah, a lot of similarities there. I feel like that a misinformation that can come about. I will be honest, and maybe this is pulling a little of your OT background in. One of the things that I talk openly with parents about is you can't do everything right now. Sometimes you have to prioritize what to focus on. And so in the earlier stages, I have a three-year-old patient right now who just transitioned to the school-based system out of the birth to three program and did qualify for OT, but it's like those OT goals of holding a, a crayon type, that type of thing aren't the highest priority in terms of the parent, because this kid is still learning how to communicate with other people. And so how do you recommend like balancing all of that of, okay, earlier is better, but say that there's other priorities. Yeah. Am I, is my question making sense? 
This is a wonderful question. And I actually, I love that you brought this up because in part of the training that I give to um, other therapists and teachers and even parents too, we talk about the foundational approach. And so it's something I developed from the research and really it is all about building up those foundations. So while we can take a top-down approach and we explicitly teach handwriting, we also know that we have to start at the bottom and build up those skills. And so for your three-year-old example, I'm not necessarily, like you said, that's not necessarily a priority to hold a crayon. But what I would like to see that child do is do some good gross motor play some core strengthening, some crawling, some climbing, because that is actually what we want for a three-year-old. Because if they can have a strong foundation, their handwriting skills will be 10 times better when they're five and six years old, because they have that good, solid core stability. And a good neurological saying is stability precedes mobility. So we have to have a stable core in order to get the mobility, meaning our fingers, our fine motor skills to, to move smoothly. Oh, I love that so much. And it also goes so hand in hand with autistic kids like this sensory regulation often involves a lot of more motor based play. So it's like you're coming at it from multiple areas. So that is awesome. What would you say? Okay, kids are starting school. What are some indicators that parents need to start considering additional support for handwriting? One of the easiest things I think is look around and see what the peers are are doing. And does your child look similar to the peers? And if not, that can be a red flag. Another red flag I would recommend watching out for is does your child enjoy writing or is it torture? So often this is a big red flag for our kids. If they're avoiding writing, if it's painful for them, if it is causing discomfort, if they just have meltdowns every time we get a piece of paper out, there's something there. There's some kind of barrier there. And so that's a big red flag. Sometimes just how they hold the pencil, if they hold it in an awkward manner, that can be a, a red flag. But really, I think, and then talking with the teacher, if it's a teacher that you um, trust and and you feel that you can value their um, opinion because they're working with the child every day, then um, check in with them and, and see as well. But I think that output and then also that avoidance piece are the two biggest red flags. And for my own ex- personal experience, too, that was when I thought, wow, something's going on with my own daughter in kindergarten. I'm like, even before the teachers were aware, I was like, there's something not clicking here. (laughs) And so that we actually started to reading tutoring that summer between kindergarten and first grade. And then by the time first grade rolled around, her teachers were on board and they're like, you see something, which is great because that's still plenty early. And it also, it's never too late, but I think you have that parent intuition as well. And that always helps. Yeah. So then curious, is there anything, you know, obviously there was a need, which is why you developed this business. Are there occupational therapists either within the school system or outside, like an outpatient that do sometimes address this? Or are you finding that this is a gap even within the field of occupational therapy? I think it's a gap even in the field. I think there are. Therapists out there that do have experience, particularly with kids 
I feel like a lot of times in outpatient, we do get our kids with autism, our kids with ADHD and all of that, but it's those kids with learning disabilities that I feel like they're the ones that that kind of are missing out. They're not really, again, like qualifying for this or qualifying for that. But And then also it's just handwriting is still, even though OTs learn about motor and sensory and all of that in our degree program, it's still not, handwriting itself is still not really expanded upon. And there is really a wealth of information and research out there on it but you have to really go looking for it and then get all of the additional trainings and all of that. So I still think there's a gap and that's not to diminish the quality of any therapists at all out there. It's just, we all end up in our specialties and our niches. And, and I also think that coming at it from a different perspective than a medical model is essential. And so coming at it from more of an educational model and so really understanding the literacy again and um, encoding and um, decoding. I've even learned so much about the phonological awareness system and the reading piece just because it goes hand in hand with so much of, of the writing too. So yeah. hopefully that answers that in a respectful way. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because like even I talk a lot about on the field too is what practices are those practitioners learning? And it's not like saying that individual practitioners are doing a bad job. It's that sometimes they aren't exposed to things. And I can speak about that from firsthand, or I can speak to that from a firsthand experience. Like neurodiversity wasn't something I ever learned about in school, like ever. And so it's some of it is these individual providers having to learn this additional information, seek additional training and what their capacity is. And an example too, that parallels this, which is actually how we met. Um, Dr. Samantha Goldman was on here and we were talking about how not all OTs are really trained in sensory either. They might get a little bit, but do they understand the full picture? So I think for parents listening for this, if you happen to find an OT who really can support handwriting when this is something they dove into that can be wonderful. And it's also limited is what I'm hearing. So yeah, that makes sense. And, and again, just to, to bring it back, often there are kids that we see and clients or students that we work with that we do recommend them to go get OT services because they need something different than what we have. And we are 100% um, happy to do that. And just an example, one of our clients, he was, he's new and he was actually working with an OT and, and was discharged. And I suggested to the mom, I'm like, I don't know if he's ready to be discharged. Can we keep him in? But, but they were very much medical model and they were like, no, he's met his goals. And it's just a lot of parent advocacy. And, but yeah, it's still just figuring out and doing kind of a workaround to where these kids are getting their support the support that they need from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Now I'd like to go a little bit more into, you said that handwriting really ties into literacy and you talked about your own daughter's experience and some of the things you were noticing there and just broad, broadly being connected to learning disability. So can you share yeah, more about what that connection is and break it down for the listener? Real quick, just a brief interruption because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Sure. So when we look at learning disabilities, we'll talk about that first. There's three, there's the umbrella is what I like to say. And then there's really three parts to that. There's learning disability in reading, a learning disability in writing, and then a learning disability in math. And so often, if a child has one, the likelihood of them having another is really high, particularly with this dyslexia and dysgraphia piece. Again, not always. A child can definitely have dysgraphia and not dyslexia and vice versa. But so often the parts of the brain, the language centers of the brain are recruited with reading and writing, very similar parts of the brain basically are recruited. And so when you have a child with a learning disability, there have been fMRIs, which are brain scans that have shown the how different parts of the brain are being recruited if they have dyslexia and if they are, quote, neurotypical, which is fascinating because they're recruiting more areas of the brain and in a inefficient way. Hence the that's the issue, right? That that is the issue. As far as the link between reading and writing, when we think about reading, that is the decoding. So they're using their language centers of the brain to look at a word and sound it out. It's very much like auditory. When we're flipping that and we are encoding to be able to write it, it's almost the reverse. So a fancy way to say it is um, called orthographic mapping. So basically, we go from the sound to the letters to make the word. What we don't realize, because it just a lot of times it comes so naturally for us as parents or, or therapists or tutors or whatever, um, but that's a lot going on. There's a lot of neurological things going on, but there's also sensory and motor. And so being able to hear the sound, process the sound, match the sound with a letter or a blend, mm-hmm. um, and then remember how to form the letter, and then be able to spell the word yes. um, to get it on paper. It's just a lot of cognitive steps. Another interesting thing that maybe the listeners might be able to relate to is if your child has beautiful writing in isolation, so they can form a letter by itself beautifully. But then when you give that cognitive load of having to think about what they're writing, spell, and then actually write, 
their writing can become just illegible because that cognitive load is so much higher. And so another piece too with the dysgraphia is it's not always motor necessarily. So it's not always messy handwriting. A child can have a specific learning disability in written expression is the technical term and their handwriting can be beautiful, but it can be that process of getting their thoughts out to paper, being able to organize those thoughts and then forms words, sentences, and so on. So that's the big overview of of learning disabilities and, and all of that. And hopefully that explains a little bit of the decoding and encoding as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think And the thing that kept coming to mind as you're giving all these examples is how effortful it is for these kids that have these learning disabilities to read and write and what might come so much more seamlessly for another child their age, your child might be having to work so much harder. And then when we also think it's really fascinating then to think about autistic children who might also have learning disabilities, being autistic, they're likely having to work harder in these social interactions and sensing what's going on and understanding what's going on. And then we go to academics and they're having to work really hard to encode and decode and all of that. And no wonder they come home and they're exhausted or they're melting down is basically there's this idea of the spoons theory. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast is it came from individuals with chronic pain, but autistic individuals have definitely adopted it of like, you have a set number of spoons every day and a spoon is like how much energy you're putting towards something. And if your kid uses all their spoons at school in order to get through the school day, they might have nothing to give when they get come home and they need that reset of sleep. So I think it also puts into perspective too of this isn't just, and I'm even like, as I'm saying this and listening to you, it's not just about handwriting. It, it's so right. much broader and it impacts the child so much more. Plus there's so many things that require handwriting. And yes, we've, we're moving to technology more and more, but handwriting's never going to fully go away. Exactly. And, and we don't want it to, because the research shows that writing something by hand increases the retention of that, like, tremendously. So there is research. And also another research study talks about how writing in cursive improves a child's spelling, which I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then handwriting print in grades one and two improves their reading skills. So the research shows that handwriting, there is definitely an importance to that. And I'm also glad you circled back and brought up autism again, because we also work with kids that have autism and just need a little handwriting boost. And oftentimes we find that we really are looking at that child's strengths. We come at it from a strengths-based approach because for an example, one of our clients, he has autism and his visual skills are through the roof. If he can see it, he can copy it and it, it is incredible. And yet you pull that visual and then again, you're adding that cognitive layer on. And so now he's having to remember and then form the letter and so on. And so often, again, that's a great support and accommodation is just providing a little alphabet strip on that child's desk so that they can constantly refer to that. And it has made, and then also changing the type of paper that he uses that has more lines 
super easy fixes and increased his legibility that the teacher was shocked. They're like, how did this happen in two weeks or whatever it was? And, and I'm just like, it's just like sometimes these little tiny fixes that we can do and coming from that strength-based approach, which is always important. Absolutely. Yeah. Love that. So we are going to get in a second to talking about like your business and how you support, but anything else that you want to make sure that we hit upon in terms of the foundation of this and handwriting and learning disabilities, anything that you feel like we've missed in our discussion? Um, oh my goodness. I could talk for hours about this, (laughs) right? But I think if I want a takeaway for all parents to hear, it's a few things. Number one, if, if parents are like, what can I do today to help my child? Often I'm going to say, go outside and play. Mm. And parents are obviously look at me like, what? But really that builds that stability in that core again. Our kids are just not getting enough of that these days. And they need that shoulder stability from climbing on those monkey bars and crawling and And that is going to improve their handwriting. And so that's just like such an easy, fun recommendation. And then the other piece is a lot of schools are just not spending time on handwriting instruction. And and that's not necessarily, it's a systematic issue. And particularly our kids who have lived, the kids have lived through the pandemic, but they have to miss learning and some miss a gap in that instruction. And that explicit instruction has to happen. Kids don't just learn how to write, just like they don't learn how to read. They have to be explicitly taught letter formation and sizing and all of this. Your child may not even have a a diagnosis. And a lot of our kids that we see don't. And that's fine too. They just might need a boost and, and they maybe miss that explicit instruction or maybe their school doesn't teach cursive. But the parent values that and they see the research and they, they know that learning cursive is really important too. They come to us for help and it's just, I think it's, it's valuable for the parent to have that understanding and then be the advocate for the child. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I'm curious then, we've talked about learning disabilities. Do you ever come across hyperlexia in your work? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. These kids are just wonderful at masking, right? Too, because they are so brilliant. And, and yet there is a gap. And there are the kids that slip through the cracks often, too, because they, their performance does not match their ability. And, and their brain moves at 90 miles per hour. And so getting them to slow down. And that's where, again, cursive sets a play too, because I'm like, oh, okay, if you want to learn fast, let's learn cursive first. And then it naturally slows them down because they're really having to think about it too. And they're like having to learn a whole new language almost. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But no, those kids are super fun and brilliant. And if we can give them a strategy to get their thoughts out, they're going to change the world, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And for parents not listening, I've referenced hyperlexia on the podcast before, but we see there are a subset of autistic kids who have this like 
hyper ability, this instead of it being a difficulty for them, it's coming so naturally. So these are often the kids that are, we're seeing know their letters and are reading and know their numbers really early. And it's fun doing evals. I hear this quite a lot of, yeah, my three-year-old is fully reading and you're like, whoa. And listen, if your kid's not like this too, that that is okay, but it's just how their brain is wired that this information comes so readily to them. And it can be really fun and engaging. And we often, like you're describing, Kelly, see that skills discrepancy of, okay, maybe they're reading and then what's their social interaction? Like I had one little boy who that's all he would talk about is letters and numbers and was doing reading and already writing and he was two. And so it's missing opportunities sometimes for a social interaction because their same age peers aren't interested in that. So. Yeah. And one thing I would caution there too, is even if they are that two or three-year-old that is reading and knows their letters and all of that, I would still hesitate to really have them writing a lot because my guess is motor wise, they're not ready. So I would still push for that motor development first. Otherwise you're talking about just building up a bad habits that are going to end up slowing them down and making their writing less efficient in the future. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So to wrap us up, tell us a little bit about, I know you've talked about your business a little bit already, but how do you support families? What does this look like? And yeah, like how do families, I guess we've talked the whole episode of how families know when to come to you, but if you want to touch on that as well. Yeah, sure. So I offer a free consultation for new families, just because I feel like often parents, they just need to talk through and does does my kid need help or does this look normal or sound normal? Or I see so often on some Facebook groups that I'm on that they'll post a picture and and say, does my child have dysgraphia? And it's, there's so much more to that. But I think I enjoy spending time just talking with parents on that free consultation and we can problem solve and figure out what the next step is. And then often if it's not something that we can quick fix, will recommend that handwriting assessment, which really dives deeper and breaks down all of the components from actual letter formation, line placement, sizing, spacing, all of those technical skills to written expression, um, sentence writing, alphabet knowledge, being able to copy versus writing a sentence that is dictated to them, spelling, and essay composition, I think that assessment really heals back the layers. And so then we can see, okay, those are the lagging skills. There's our strengths. So let's use our strengths as well. We also do the parent interview as part of that. And then we'll, we are um, happy to talk to the teachers as well to get their input from that. We write up a report and that's the assessment. And then from that assessment, we really decide what is the best plan. Not all kids do we say, oh yeah, you definitely would benefit from tutoring. Sometimes it's a quick fix. And then a lot of times it's, okay, let's do tutoring once, twice a week. It's all done virtually. We send the materials to the family. They don't have to worry about that. I know that's often a question as parents are like, but how do you do handwriting on a computer? Yeah. (laughs) So we provide all the materials and it literally looks just like an in-person session would look. It's just, we're on the screen facilitating, but And then really we check in, we're 
constantly monitoring progress and really individualizing the plan. And all of our tutors have extensive training in this as well. And then I oversee everyone's plan. And we just support, we support the parent, we support their teachers. I just was sending an email the other night to, to a teacher, just giving them some support for the classroom. And often that ends up meaning that all of the kids in that classroom benefit too, because then the teachers, oh, this is a cool tool, or this is a great idea or whatever. So that's what that process looks like. But we also have so much um, free resources too on our website, which is handwritingsolutions.org. So we have over 60 um, blog post articles that really talk on every single area. So if your child's struggling in a particular area, you can definitely read and get some easy tips there as well. And yeah, I think I'm like constantly on blog or uh, podcasts or YouTube or whatever. So I'm just trying to get the information and knowledge out there and and be a support for these families because I know the struggle. I've been there. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're on Instagram too. So we'll link all of that in the show notes. So people can reach out. We'll also put the link to book a free consult call with you as well. If parents are interested in exploring and seeing if this could be a good fit, because I know I love the idea that you're offering a free consult too, because I know sometimes it's like, how do I know when to seek tutoring? And like, we could sit here and talk about all the nuances, but that's exactly the thing is it, it can be so nuanced, but what I hope parents gathered from this episode are some of those indicators to look at, to start looking for monitoring all of that, and they can reach out for more information. Yeah. And we're hoping to actually have a quiz on our website that will parents can just easily go in and click, here's what I'm seeing, here are the issues, and then more of a screening, which I think will be, that's, I think that's, will, will be so helpful for parents to be able to take that and say, oh, okay, this makes sense. Or, oh yeah, we're good. Or yeah, no, we need a little extra help. So to be, to be seen on that. Yeah. And actually one question, follow-up question too, then if a child also needs more reading support or even like math support, are, do you, are you like referring out for those? Are those some of the things that you're going to help within your program? How does that work? Currently we are referring out for that. And we have a couple of really good referral sources for that right now. And we're actually working on a partnership with one of those sources because they are reading and math experts. And so I think, yeah, I think the partnership will be really good. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank you. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. 
Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.